0: to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right. Well, we are going to continue Hebrews 11 this morning, and we're going to take, I don't know why, the Lord just keeps take, giving us three verse chunks here in verses 14 through 16. And But it will pick up, I promise. I think after today, it'll pick up in bigger sections. Uh, yeah, I know, Brent's doubting my validity here, um, but this is, this is a really, really amazing set of scriptures that's all about the new city and how these people that were walking by faith looked toward an inheritance that they would never experience on the earth in their, la- their lifetime, and so we've been going through Hebrews a lot, and what I decided to do since the Lord broke chapter 11 into so many Different messages so far. I decided to start with this so you guys see where we've, where we've been in chapter 11 to date. So before we dive into this, though, as we always should do, let's, let's open in prayer and petition the Holy Spirit to teach us everything here. God, I just thank you so much again for this time together. God, we are so grateful that you are uniting the remnant in these last of last days of the church age, and that, God, you have a special call on everybody in this room and everybody watching around the world, Lord, to serve and to step up and to push back against the things of the enemy. And we thank you, God, for the power of the word of God, the power of of your word that you've preserved for us today. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us everything this morning out of these verses in Hebrews. And we love you and we give you praise in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 11 so far, where we've been, it started in verse 1 with with what is faith and the definition of faith in the Bible. And then we jumped into through faith the worlds were framed. And so we got into a lot of physics and science and how it's the word of God that spoke everything into existence. All of the time domains were framed by his word. And those were verses 2 and 3. Then the Lord dives into going through the list of these incredible people throughout the Bible and how they pressed on in faith in everything they did. The mark of faith with Abel and Enoch. Faith was pleasing to God with Noah. By faith, you're called, and we we did a deep dive study on Abram. And then by faith or persuaded by faith with Sarah to press on. And last that was last week. And if you missed last week, go back and listen to that. The Lord had, a, had some really special words, especially for all the godly women involved in this church. And then today, our new city, our forever home with him, in verses 14 through 16. And so we'll just keep going along here in chapter 11, kind of piece by piece. But as a reminder, if you step back and look at the whole book of Hebrews, okay, the entire book is to us, the believer, Remember, it has nothing to do with how to get saved. It's all about what do you do once you are saved. And the whole book is, is structured around these five warnings to us as the believer to not apostatize and to cling to Jesus. And so we went through the danger of drifting, then the danger of hardening the heart, and this is all a process step by step. The danger of failing to mature when you're kind of just stuck and you're not progressing in your faith anymore. The danger of willful sin, and then the danger of refusing. And so that's the pattern of, of a person that is saved, but then starts to go astray from Jesus. It starts subtle. And I know probably a lot of you have experienced in your life someone that has gone through this process or is somewhere in this process, but it always starts small, right? They start to drift, then they start to harden their heart. You can go to them, you start to speak to them, you try to speak life into them and turn them back, And they just won't listen. You can tell their heart has been hardened. And then they fail to mature further. Then they dive into willful sin. And then ultimately they refuse God. And that's the process the Lord lays out in the book of Hebrews. And so why are those warnings there? Again, those warnings are there because he wants such a deep relationship with you and I. God is longing for your your priorities in your life to be him and only him. And then everything else is second. And so if you're putting anything above Jesus on that list in your life, then he is a jealous God for you. If you're letting anything get in your way, see, idolatry isn't just bowing to a little statue. Idolatry is anything that gets in the way of you and your walk with Jesus. It's anything, that is idolatry. And so if there's anything of this world that is holding you back from fully serving him and walking with him, then that's idolatry. It's just that simple. And so he is longing for you to put all of that aside and commit your life to him. That's the key. And so to start out, let's, let's read through the verses in Hebrews 11, and then we'll get to, to verse 16 and break these down verse by verse here. So, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And now remember, the definition of faith, you even hear the secular world make statements like, well, you've just got to have faith, right? You hear athletes say that all the time. I just had to have faith that I could, and they're misapplying what faith is continuously. But the world knows that faith, there's something there, and it's the substance of all they hope for because they're hoping for success, right? People that are rooted in the world. In verse two, for by it the elders... Or the people of old, the ancient ones, obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And so that's, we dove into all the quantum physics there. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, Yet speaketh. And by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found, because God had translated him. Remember, Enoch was raptured before the flood. For before his translation he had the testimony that he pleased God. Remember Enoch when he was translated the same those same three groups of people, remember? Those raptured before the judgment, those preserved during the flood, knowing his family members, the eight in the ark and those that perished during the flood. It's the same three groups during the seven-year tribulation. We, the church who were raptured before, and then the 144,000 who are preserved during, and those that accept the Lord that survive, and then a lot that perish. But without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that when we dove into that verse, remember that word, that attribute of God is only used in that single verse in the entire New Testament, that Greek word for rewarder. That's a name, an attribute, a character of God, a character trait that you, because of your faithful service for the king, have a reward on the other side of this, and it's a place in the kingdom. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not, as, not seen as yet. "...moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. And by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles." With Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. And therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, speaking of Isaac, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand, which is by the seashore, innumerable. And then here's the key. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had the opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And so notice that the Lord, through these first 16 verses in Hebrews 11, he is linking every one of these people he went through with their perseverance in the faith to press on toward a heavenly country and a city that he has prepared for them. And so they had a promise, the same promise that you and I cling to and hold on to right now, that God has prepared for us a heavenly country and a new city. And that should be everything you need to press on in this life, in this world. Because They saw a promise that they never were able to inherit, and yet they clung to it, and they used it anytime they were down, anytime the enemy was attacking them, anytime that the enemy tried to get them off track, they clung to God's word and to his promise, and that is something that is such a powerful lesson for you and I today, especially in the world in which we live because it is becoming more and more and more hostile today in this nation and around the world to be a follower of Christ, more than any other time in my lifetime for sure. And you see pastors randomly getting arrested simply for praying outside of abortion clinics, or you see people overseas getting arrested for posting on some social media site a Bible verse, right? That lady over in Europe that happened to the world is getting more and more hostile toward you and I. And if your place and if your roots are in this world, it's going to become very uncomfortable. But you need to look past this world. That's the point. You've got to look past this world of of Satan is in control right now, the prince of the power of the air. And so if he's in control and he wants to shut down and, and muzzle the churches so that you and I can't share hope with the world, it's going to get even more hostile until God calls us home. So when you look at these, the verses we're going to cover today, 14 through 16, these all died in faith. I I put verse 13 on here just as a reminder for you. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They died trusting Jesus at his word, that they must be resurrected to something that he promised them. And that's, you and I will be resurrected to something of the same. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And so this word here, this testimony these people carried was that they plainly sought a heavenly country with a city whose maker is God. So think of the the simplicity of that testimony, of that walk with Jesus. Simply by not living for the world you plainly declare to those around you that you're a child of the king. And that's the call for all of us. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't even have to say anything. If you are walking for Jesus, people know, I promise you, because you look so different than everyone else around you. So you too can carry that testimony that this world is not your home. This is not your home. You are a pilgrim and a sojourner through this earth. And the question is, what do you do with the time that you have left to make an impact, a ripple for all eternity for God's kingdom? And to do that, you've got to uproot anything tethering you to this world and the flesh, anything. So by doing so, you too will plainly declare that you're also seeking a heavenly country. And isn't that an amazing testimony? Don't you want your life to be characterized by the fact that you are living for something that no one can see right now, but it is more real than what you and I are living in at the moment. And that that is an incredible testimony that you can live out. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. So when you first read this, I don't know, when when I was studying this this week, the word opportunity you often associate with something positive, right? It's an opportunity. You have an opportunity to whatever, go out and win a game or get a promotion or, or whatever the case is. But when you actually look this up in the Greek, the key here is that the word opportunity is not associated with a positive outcome. It's kind of like, if you dis, kids, if you disobey your parents, you have an opportunity to get grounded. You know, you have an opportunity to lose your cell phone for the weekend or to uh, lose the Xbox or whatever the case is. It's an opportunity. It just means something that is in due time. So look at this. If these, if these great people would have been rooted in the world that they were delivered out of, then they would have eventually returned and not pressed onward. That's what God is saying here in verse 15. And the Greek word for they had been mindful It's mane manuo, okay, in the Greek, Mane manuo. It literally means be mindful of or to think of and feel for someone or something. So it's, it's a longing affection for something or someone. Okay, then it's used of Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. It's that same word that remember Lot's wife, be mindful of Lot's wife because what did she do? When she's delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah, She was rooted in where she was delivered out of and she was looking back. She was mindful of it. It's kind of the same concept. But this, so reread verse 15 here. And truly, if they had been mindful of, if they had affection for, if they were bringing into remembrance where they were delivered out of, of that country from whence they came out of, they might've had the opportunity to have returned. Now, let's break down the word opportunity here. Okay, this word "opportunity," it literally means a fixed and definite time, the time when things are brought to crisis, the decisive epoch waited for. This is all from a Greek lexicon. Opportune or seasonable time, a limited period of time. To what time brings the state of the times, the things and events of time. So eventually, it just means in due time they would have returned. Okay, that's the opportunity they had if they would have been mindful of where they are delivered out of, in due time, they would have been going back to it. Okay, I hope that makes sense. The Greek word for returned, it literally means to bend back or turn back. So think about it in, in the very last bullet here in simple terms. If your heart and roots are in this world, in due time, you will bend and turn back to it. That's what God is saying here in verse 15. If your heart is in this world, in due time, you will return and eventually bend back to it. You'll bow the knee to it and bend back to it because you're looking for sustenance, provision, everything of the world that God wants to be for you. You'll look for that clothing in the, in the world, in the flesh. Okay, in verse 16 here, but now they desire a better country that is unheavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city. So since they were not mindful of the world God called them out of, they desired a superior heavenly country. And notice that in this verse, it is God who's not ashamed, not the people. So God is not ashamed to be called their God. Did you know that you could get to a point in your life and your walk where he is ashamed? That's, that's kind of sobering if you really think about it. You know, if you are living in willful sin, if you are disobeying him, if you have a hard, a hardened heart and you're refusing God, it's not that he's ashamed to be your savior. He's ashamed that he's entrusted this with you, and you took his name in vain and did nothing with it. It's it's to him, it's a reproach. That's why he puts it in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the Lord, thy God's name, in vain. It's not, again, that has nothing to do with your vocabulary. It has everything to do with taking his name of the king and then doing nothing with it. You took it in vain. You took his name in vain. And so when we are unashamed, God is then also unashamed of us. And we, if, if we are ashamed of him, then he will be ashamed of us. And that's all in Mark 8, 38. Look at this. Whoever therefore shall be ashamed of me And of my words. Now it's interesting that he he attaches the word of God to that. Because what does the word of God do? It's quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword divine amongst the center, the soul, and the spirit. And if you just look around globally, how many people want to water down the word of God? And remove it and dismantle it and take things out of it. And it doesn't really say that marriage is just between a man and a woman. It says something different. It doesn't say that children are children when they're in the womb. You know, it says something different. They're watering down and dismantling the Word of God. And so they are ashamed of His words, His Word. Now, remember, and by doing so, you're just going to be, that means you're ashamed of Jesus because in the beginning was the Word. The word was with God, the word was God. Okay, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the son of man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So notice that if they are ashamed of him and his words, he too will be ashamed when he comes back to set up the kingdom. Now that's a, again, that is a sobering thought. And if you're sensitive to it, the remnant is getting smaller and smaller and smaller in the day in which we live. The people that are truly clinging to the word of God and running after him, it's a small group. And, and it probably, honestly, it probably has been a small group ever since Jesus uh, formed the church after his burial and, and resurrection. But it's always been a remnant. It's just now that remnant seems to be getting uh, pushed more and more in a corner. So you should not be ashamed of your God. That's the point. Romans 1:16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, I didn't put it in here, but the gospel. What is the gospel of Christ? The gospel is defined for you in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. There's nothing added to it. There's nothing to take away from it. He paid the penalty for all, for all eternity, And you can't add anything to it. Salvation is through him and him alone, his death, burial, and resurrection. And all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you are saved. That's the gospel. Okay, people try to twist what the gospel is and and add things to it. Well, then it means you can't live in sin anymore. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for it. The gospel, then what you need to do is take it a, a step further that you can be set free because of the gospel. And so you can live in total liberty and freedom at that point. But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look at Second Timothy 1.8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.12, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against the day. Now that's a powerful verse in 2 Timothy 1.12, but what he's keeping, what you have committed to him for that day, it's speaking of the day of Christ. The day of Christ is after the rapture, when you and I stand at the Bema seat and you get your rewards and crowns for faithful service and you're not ashamed because you are trusting that all of your faithful service for the kingdom will be rewarded. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him and that he's keeping that stored up for you against that day. Look at Second Timothy 1, The Lord give mercy unto the house for he oft hath refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. For both he that, or Hebrews 2.11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So do not ever be embarrassed that you are called a child of the most high God. Do not ever be embarrassed. I remember as a kid, I've been pretty open about this with all of you. My dad left us when I was six. I didn't have a great father relationship growing up and i was a, a big part of i think the security i had as a child growing up was that i really when the lord grabbed a hold of me at 8 and said i'll be your father everything your dad was going to do i will do for you i was it it brought so much security in my life because i don't know how i knew but i just knew that hey I have a heavenly dad that's going to take care of anything I need. If I need counsel, if I, to teach me how to, how to treat a wife someday, to teach me how to uh, pick a career, go to college, whatever, he was going to take care of me. And when you trust in the total provision and security of Christ, it w- you will walk through this life in complete confidence, no matter what the enemy throws at you. And so please, please, If there's anything that you are not trusting him for, get that right today when you leave here. Take it to the throne room of the universe, lay it down at his feet, and trust that he will be your provider because he wants to take care of everything. And it's so often we look to a spouse or we look to uh, parents or, or siblings or friends in the room or a Bible study to take care of our issues, and you're looking in the wrong spot. You've got to trust that Jesus will take care of that. Now, he may take care of it through a friend or a spouse as a tool and an instrument, but first you've got to look to him and let him minister to you in the only way that he can. So in Hebrews 2.11, "'For both he that sanctifieth "'and they who are sanctified are all of one, "'for which cause he is not ashamed "'to call them brethren.'" Do you know that Jesus wants to call you brethren? Brothers and sisters, you are co-heirs with Christ for all eternity. This is not a, a little blip in the radar where you just get a reward from him for 40 years. Two million years from now, what happened today will not matter except how you served him. That's all that will matter. And so there will come a day where you will stand accountable to only one. You will not be accountable to a career, an employer, a spouse, a sibling, any of your friends. You will be accountable to one and only one, and his name's Jesus. And because he's risen, his word is sure, and you too will rise to be in his presence forever. And that is the promise of the inheritance that we have after this, that you too will be resurrected to an eternal inheritance, a heavenly country, Look at Romans 6.21. See, because think about shame right now. Shame is a tool of the enemy. So to be unashamed means you have no shame, right? You're not shameful of anything that God has delivered you out of. Romans 6.21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Shame is one of the most powerful tools the enemy could ever use against you because all of us in this room have been delivered out of something from our lives. And if the enemy wants to take you back to what you've been delivered out of and plant seeds of shame in your heart and mind, that that is a tool from the pit of hell. Okay, that is a tool of the enemy. Notice that in Romans 6, 21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? He's not, the Lord doesn't say you should be ashamed. He's saying you are now. So when when Christians walk around, around and they're tethered to things in their former life and they're tethered to all these bad things they did or, or what happened to them in their lives, or even if you didn't commit it and you were a victim of something, that do not let the enemy clothe you in a shame identity because he will trap you in a, in a state where you don't walk in your security in Christ, you walk in something of a past life that the enemy wants to keep you there. He wants to stay, you to stay rooted in a place where that's all you can think about is either what happened to you or what you did. And you, instead, what you need to do is look, put your hand to the plow and move forward in security in Jesus. Look at Psalms 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Remember, the east and the west is an immeasurable distance that goes on for infinity. Because if you and I left this place and you started to head out east, you could go east for an eternity. Just go around the globe. You'd always move east. Same if you went west. You'd go around the globe. You'd always move west. This is also another testament to around earth, by the way. The way the Lord words this. If you went north, right, you could only go north for so far, and then you'd stop and you'd head back south. Same with going south. And so if it's an immeasurable distance from east and west, and that's how far your transgressions are from you, why do you have any more shame of them? He's removed them. They're off of you. And for I will, this is Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So if Jesus doesn't remember them, why should you and I? Now that's the key because he has forgotten them. And if you actually, if you read in Micah 5, I believe it is, I didn't add this verse, but go read in the, I think it's the end of Micah 5. The Lord even talks about how he takes your transgressions and plunges them into the depth of the sea. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there's not much that's, that's ever harmed me from the depth of the sea. You know, there's not much that can be there. And your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more in Hebrews 10, verse 17. So, don't let the enemy try to use shame as a tool. That's the key. Be unashamed of your security in Christ. He delivered you out of something for a testimony, and he wants to use that testimony, not let it cripple you. And so keep that in mind. So Jesus personally went to prepare a place for you and I. And all of you remember this from John 14. Because at the end of Hebrews 11, verse 16 here, for he hath prepared for them a city. So when did he go to do that? That's in John 14, starting in verse one. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Now, this is interesting in verse four. The way, you know the way. Remember in Acts, the walk the, after the church was formed, Walking with the Lord was referred to as the way, a lot through the book of Acts. The way to get to him. The way to have a deep relationship with him. And Jesus claimed to be the way in John 14, verse six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. See, there is only one way. And if he went to go prepare a city for you and I, there's only one way to get there. There's only one gate to come in through, and that's Jesus. And once you're there, There's only one way to get deeper and deeper and deeper into that city, to sit with him and to be co-heirs with him. That's with Christ and surrendering, surrendering your life to him. So by faith, all of these great people, they walked with God looking toward an inheritance, clinging to God's word, and yet they never received it in this life. They knew that God would fulfill his word And it is still to be fulfilled in the future. Think about the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are still to be fulfilled. And that was more than 4,000 years ago. They still haven't happened, but they will. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 8, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I was reminded, Randy and I were talking this morning, and we were just talking about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. And I was reminded that after Hebrews, we're going to do a message on that too, on the difference. But the kingdom of heaven. So people are going to come from the east and the west and from all over the world and sit down with three guys that have been dead for thousands upon thousands of years in an inheritance that they were promised and never received. Think about how cool that is. You and I will go and sit down with Abraham and break bread and talk with him. Man, what was it like to watch Sodom and Gomorrah just get wiped off the map? You know, what was it like to uh, fight those those kings in Genesis 14? What was it like to take Isaac up Mount Moriah and offer him to God? Just imagine all the conversations, but guess what? They're excited to talk with you also. They're excited to hear about, man, what was it like to live when you lived in the shadow of Satan's kingdom trying to rise up upon the earth, you are living in a time that every single person in the Bible looked toward right now in 2022. You're living in a time that they all wanted to see because they wanted to see God strike down the enemies of this earth and come back and set up the kingdom. It's amazing. Okay, Joseph knew that he would be resurrected in the land, which is why he did not want his bones left in Egypt. Okay, in Genesis 50, verse 24, starting in verse 24, and Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, that's pretty simple, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Notice that he's linking the promise back to those three guys Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. He's prophesying. And ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, if you study the life of Joseph, there are more than 100 ways that his life emulates Christ as a, as a foreshadowing being betrayed by his brethren. There's, I won't go through them all, but there's a whole list. If you study Joseph's life, okay, being put into a prison, being put into, like Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, then being raised to rule over the kingdoms of the earth. There's all this, this typology. But Joseph did not want his bones left in Egypt. Why? Haven't you guys read that and always wondered, why in the world did he not want his bones left in Egypt? That's kind of a weird thing. It's because he didn't wanna be resurrected outside of the land. He wanted to be resurrected in the land. And so Moses remembers years later in Exodus 13, verse 19, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. So Moses remembered and fulfills God's word. Job speaks of being resurrected to see the Messiah, which will happen after Jesus returns in Revelation 19. When Jesus defeats his enemies and establishes the millennial kingdom, the Old Testament saints then get their resurrected bodies. You and I get our resurrected bodies at the rapture. Before Christ, before John the Baptist was the close of the Old Testament, remember according to Jesus, from John the Baptist all the way back to Adam, they get their resurrected bodies after the seven-year tribulation. And it's, it's subtle, but it's an important point to note because they're resurrected to an inheritance on the earth. Okay, in John, uh, Job 19, excuse me, Job 19, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day. Anytime you see the latter day in the Old Testament, think in times. Think after the tribulation or during the tribulation. He will stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So notice that in Job, he even speaks, he is in God, speaks of a new flesh after his body's destroyed. So after my skin, worms destroy this body, Job speaking, in my flesh shall I see God, meaning he knew the promise of a future resurrection, to see Jesus when Jesus stands upon the earth. That is amazing. Okay, Daniel has the same thing. The Lord speaks of this resurrection in Daniel, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, So anytime you see Michael as an archangel in the Bible, he's always fighting on behalf of Israel. That's why the seven-year tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. Michael, the prince, the great prince, which stands up for the children of Israel, okay, in that time, and there shall be a time of trouble. This is where Jesus quotes in Matthew 24 that the back half of the tribulation is the great tribulation? It's a time of trouble, such as never was seen since there was a nation. Even to that same time, and at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake: some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And the they that be wise. Now, these are, this is a reward here in verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So those that served God in this life, that ex- helped him to expand the kingdom, that were surrendered to him, some of, the, some of us and some of them will shine as the brightness of the firmament, And they that turn many to what? To righteousness, not necessarily salvation, but righteousness in terms of teaching the word of God, getting Christians to walk in the liberty and freedom they have in Christ. You'll shine as the stars forever and ever. That's an amazing promise from God. Then you fast forward down to Daniel 12 verse 13 to close. This is towards the very end of the book. But go thou thy way till the end, for thou shalt rest, this is God speaking to Daniel, and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Now, that's amazing. He's telling Daniel, you'll be resurrected to an inheritance in the land at the end of the days. You'll stand in the lot. Okay, so what is this new city going to be like? And how does God describe our forever home? I want to close from studying verse 16 to go through Revelation 21 the verses that the Lord calls and describes new city, the new city, the new Jerusalem, our forever home. So starting in verse nine, and there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come hither and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. That great city. This is where Jesus named the church. This was the, these were the passages. When he, when he named the church, it was after the new Jerusalem, the new city that is our forever home. Verse 11. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names were written thereon which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So if you think about this in a new city, in the in a glorified state we're all in our glorified bodies, this new city for eternity with Jesus, why are there gates? You know, why are there gates around our city, our forever home? It seems like people that maybe shouldn't be there are trying to get in and they shouldn't be on the grounds. And God is actually going to touch on that in a minute. In verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, to be an apostle, the definition is you had to be an eyewitness to Christ, to his works on the earth and his death, burial, and resurrection there's one exception, and that's Paul where he was taken and ministered to for 40 years by Jesus personally, and he's called an apostle. but that's all in Acts one, the definition of an apostle. So the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and the 12 apostles were the founda- were the names of the foundations. So think about this. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel are the gates, but the foundation is laid by the apostles. Now Israel was our gateway into Jesus. And one of the greatest miracles of the Bible is the fact that they rejected him ushering in the kingdom. If they would have accepted him when he rode in on the donkey, he would have ushered in the kingdom and the church would have never been formed. And that's why he says, if you would have accepted me, it would not have been John the Baptist, but Elijah that I sent to you. And we would have ushered in the kingdom according to the end of Malachi. But they rejected him. And so blindness in part has been put on Israel as a nation Okay, and it's in part until the church is full and complete from Romans eleven twenty five, 25. And after that time, blindness falls. They realize their mistake. Okay, and then they, from Hosea 5, they petition him to return. But they rejected him, and so the foundation in Jesus was then laid by the apostles. In verse 15, and he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So the city lies in four square. Four, uh, Four square, a square always represents justice or what is just in the Bible. And when we went through this last December as we were closing our study in Revelation uh, we went through a lot of examples about the breast of the high, the, the breastplate of the high priest, uh, the the altar, the ark, all these things that were squares in the Bible. But a square represents justice, so the, the people in this city will be ruled by justice, a just king. Now, if you're not familiar with what a furlong is, a furlong is approximately 220 yards. So, if if one side of the city is 12,000 furlongs. That's 1,500.003 miles, just to be very exact. Uh, That's the the distance from Miami to Lawrence, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, so almost the entire eastern seaboard, okay? Or Hollywood to Lincoln, Nebraska. Think about how vast that is, how much land that is. And there will be plenty of room in the New Jerusalem, plus that city there's also a new earth. Now, I've been thinking about this. When we went through this last year, the new earth, and I'm still praying about this, but I'm just throwing this out there for you guys to think about and to pray about and, and consider. The new earth may not be a literally a new earth. It may be new as in it's recreated like in Genesis 2, or Genesis 1, I mean. And and there's some, there's some things biblically, I, we may get into that at some point, but I don't know if the Lord actually speaks a new earth into existence and this one's dissolved away or if he has to take this one and rework it again, just like in Genesis 1. And I'm kind of starting to lean that way. Again, this is speculation. Chris, don't call me out and ask why. But speculation as to why, oh, Chris isn't even here. He, he didn't even hear my, okay. When he comes back, somebody tell him. He got it on he, yeah, he got it out on Friday. So the, the new earth it, it may be that Jesus has to put it back in its original state to make sure that Satan didn't corrupt it forever. And, it, and it's just a thought I've been having. But anyway, all that aside, the new city, it's 1,500 by 1,500 miles square. And then it's also 1,500 miles tall. Now, that's a long way because the distance from here currently, if, if you left right now and went straight up, the distance to outer space is shorter than from here to Lawton, Oklahoma. That's how close you are to being in outer space right now. You're closer to space than you are Lawton. And so to go 1,500 miles high, we've got to be in a different dimension of some kind. Otherwise, we'd, we'd all need uh, those Superman suits with the masks and stuff. Anyway, in verse 17, And he measured the wall there of 144 cubits according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. It's interesting, he says that is of the angel. So the walls should be approximately 216 feet high. If you take 144 cubits, 18 inches a cubit, it's about that. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. You and I get to walk on streets paved in gold, that is the most precious commodity on planet Earth today, the most valuable commodity. We're going to use it to lay roads in the new city. That's pretty cool. And the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a Kaldani, I Can't see that from the far for some reason. The fourth of an emerald, the fifth a sardis, the sixth a sardis or Sarnot, sardox, the sixth a sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, and the ninth a topaz, and the tenth a chrysophus, the eleventh a jackanth, the twelfth an amethyst. <laughs> Butchering those names. I'm so sorry. Uh, for some reason, I can't see those names from back here. Anyway, those stones, remember those precious stones are different names of colored light. That's the point. You can't link them to a color, really, because the stones change names throughout history, but they represent colored light, Okay, that's the point. And Adam and Eve were clothed with that before they fell. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and every, sev- every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was of pure gold, and it was transparent glass. So a pearl, that's so interesting. If you went back and you looked at the 12 stones on the breast of the, the breastplate of the high priest, they were in an order. Remember, there's four rows of three, and then the two stones on the shoulders and the four rows of three, each one was from Reuben, uh, the firstborn, to Benjamin. It was, uh, Behold a son, the son of my right hand. That was the name that, that God, it's Jesus, right, from the beginning to the end. In the order of those stones on the breastplate of the high priest, it's Behold a son, the son of my right hand. And that's why those names are first and twelfth on, on that uh, breastplate that God fashioned to go into the high place, or the holy, holy place. Holy of Holies, I mean. But a pearl is not used. But here in the new city, the pearl is of the gate. The gates are 12 pearls. Now, a pearl is a stone that comes from the sea. Uh, The sea, all through the Bible, usually means Gentiles. Just notice that. When Isaiah says, the wicked are like a troubled sea, okay, he's talking about the Gentiles. When In the Revelation, when there is no more sea, I think God is talking about there's no more Gentiles at that point. But they come from the sea, and they grow from a stimuli through accretion and irritation. So they actually grow out of being persecuted. Okay, think about it. They grow through persecution, so to speak, and irritation. And that persecution, then they are removed from their place of growth to be an item of immense adornment, just like the church. So the pearl as a Gentile stone is used of The church, that's why God uses that idiom, because the church always grows through persecution. It ultimately will be removed from its place of growth to be held up as an item of adornment in God's kingdom. And that's why in the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13, Jesus uses a pearl, the pearl of great price. Remember that whole parable. So verse 22 in Revelation 21 here. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So there's no more temple. The temple in the new city is is gone. The millennial temple's put away with, and there's no temple now. The Lamb is our temple. In Matthew 12, verse six, now why is that? Because Jesus said, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. So Jesus is greater than the temple, so the temple is not needed anymore. In Revelation 12, 21, that should be 21. I'm sorry, there's a typo there. Verse 23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So there's no more sun in the solar system. Jesus is the light of the world, literally. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth. Now, this is probably why there are gates in the new city. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of the new city, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So at some point while we're in eternity in this new city, the gates open up and kings of the earth bring presents to Jesus. Now how cool is that, that you and I will be there when kings of the earth, these are people that were never alive before Jesus ruled and reigned for all eternity. So think about, When the millennium is set up, there's a thousand-year kingdom ushered in. There's going to be people that survive the seven-year tribulation. They go into the millennium, and they repopulate the earth. So there's people born in the millennium that will have never known a time when Jesus did not rule the earth. That is pretty wild to think about. And yet, at the end of a thousand years, and that's all in Jeremiah and Revelation. You can track those verses down. But the end of the thousand years still a great number of people revolt against him. So in Revelation 21, verse 25, wrapping up here, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is going to be a heavenly city, in a heavenly country, that there is no lie, there's no witchcraft, there's no sorcery, there's no idolatry, there's no adultery, murder, stealing, theft. You go down the list of everything we have to live with in this world today, there's none of it. There's not any of it allowed in that city. It's going to be the greatest time you will ever experience in your life. And you get to experience that for all eternity. Now, the new city is mentioned at the end of the last verses, the last six verses of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 48, verse 30. And these are the goings out of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel, three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one for Judah, one for Levi. The east side, 4,500, three gates, and one gate for Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. And at the south side, 4,500 measures, and the three gates, one gate for Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. And the west side, 4,500, with their three gates, one gate for Gad, Asher, and Nephtali. Now, it's interesting, notice that Levi does not have a gate, because his inheritance is the Lord. Remember the tribe of Levi, their inheritance was of the Lord. Um, It was around about 18,000 measures and the name of that city from that day shall be the Lord is there. That's one of the names of the new city. That's Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. That's the name, the biblical name for the new Jerusalem, the name of God. So, Aaron, can you go to the next slide? Okay, that new city. So, the key here is to be watchful because we, you and I are living in this small little window of time that, like I said, everyone in the Bible looked toward and everyone after us will look back at because it's a time of before and after the church age is closed. And so we're living in a time that is so unique because of the end of the church age as you get to see everything prophetically rising up in the earth and being established, you get to be watching and there's a reward for watching. But Jesus told us all through the Bible to be watchmen and to watch. Now, the goal of a watchman from Ezekiel, part of the key is not just to watch and see it, but to share it with those around us. So you've got to not just be watching, but you have to be sensitive enough that you can go and share with your other Christian friends and, and unbelievers that, hey, do you guys know prophetically, there's a lot being set up right now? You know, did you know that the Bible speaks of a time when there would be one religion that rules the earth? And have you been seeing what they're trying to do to combine Christianity, Islam, and Judaism into one, and they call it you know, Start conversations with them because there is going to come a time that the Antichrist, he forbids and puts himself above all that is called God. That includes Buddha and Muhammad and you just go down the list, including Jesus. See, the world calls those other things God, but they are not God, Jesus is God. And so our, our plea from the Lord is to be watching in Matthew 24, to watch therefore, in Matthew 25, to watch therefore, Mark 13, to take ye heed, watch and pray. Luke 21, to watch ye therefore. And what I say unto you, I say unto all in Mark thirteen thirty seven, watch. So you've got to be sensitive and know what is being set up and watch. And if you're not in the word of God, if you're not spending time to open God's word and to pour it into your, to regenerate, right? To wash with the water of the word, then you'll miss what's going on. And when he returns at the rapture, we as the church will get our glorified and resurrected bodies for all eternity. There's no more you know, knee pain or back pain or um, upset stomachs or whatever, sore throats. You're, you will get a glorified body just like Jesus had when he walked out of that tomb. And that body could, could travel interdimensionally, right? It could go in and out of a room without going through the door. It still needed to eat. It loved, he loved to dine. We're going to do things with the king of kings forever in a body that will never decay. And that's one that you get to serve him for all eternity with, not just your lifetime. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. That's a rapture phrase, the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. See, you and I should be groaning for this eternal state in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan. Being burdened, not for that, we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. See, Paul right there in in that set of passages in Corinthians, the Holy Spirit was revealing that he did not want to be what he described as naked, which is dead, but before the rapture. Because you don't get your resurrected body until the rapture. And so he called that little peculiar set of time when he passed away before the rapture happens as he was being naked. He was in the spirit with the Lord forever, but not in his resurrected eternal body yet. Kind of neat little... Uh, rightly dividing the word of God. So the key for all of us, though, to be groaning for that, because you can hasten the return of the king by serving him. You can hasten the return of Jesus. Get those people saved and in the ark that that are holding us all up from going home. You can help do that. So if you're here, though, or if you're watching online and, you're, and you haven't been born again, it's very simple. And there's something you need to realize that as, as mankind, you and I are the most sought after piece of creation ever. Every demon wants you to possess you. Satan wants to be you. And yet Jesus loved you so much, he died for you and wants you. See, all of the Bible from Adam on, it's a fight over humanity. It's a fight over mankind. Because man is the inheritor of the kingdom co-heirs with Christ forever, that's why Satan must raise up an antichrist in the form of man to try to be that inheritance. Satan wants to be you. And that's all in Psalms 8. You can study that about um, his call and really argument with God over who is this man that you're so mindful of him and the son of man. But he, he wants you. But God loved you so much that he died for you. And wants you even more. And so you are fought after. And the enemy, if you're watching this, the enemy does not want you to accept Christ. Does not want you to be born again. He's fighting to keep you out of that. But the joy of his, from Romans ten nine, is that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that it's that simple. God is warring for you to be born again before it's too late. But if you don't accept him, there will come a time that he cannot pursue you anymore. He has to give you your choice, your free will, and to let you go. And that's the greatest tragedy for all eternity. So if you're watching this, I am pleading with you to get born again. And to accept Jesus, it's that simple. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And you will be born again and you have a resurrected body waiting for you for all eternity. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you so much for this time together. God, thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the remnant all around the world that you are pulling together in the deep study of your word. God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to serve you in this time. We thank you for the opportunities that you lay out before us. And God, we pray a blessing upon your people all around the world. Lord, your people everywhere are being hunted, being persecuted, being imprisoned. The Bible has been being outlawed everywhere. Your word, God, must go forth. And we thank you that in these days you you have preserved a place on this planet where your, your word can be studied and taught and that it can go out around the world. And it does not return void, God. We thank you for that. And so, Lord, we know what a privilege it is in the time in which we live to live where we live, that we can study freely and worship you openly and study your word without the threat of imprisonment and persecution. And we give you praise for it, God. If there is anyone out there that found this message that is not saved, I pray, Lord, that you would bend their knees to you and let their tongue confess that you are God because you say, Lord, that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, do you do it before it's too late or not? But they will confess. And so, Lord, we know that your will is that none should perish from 2 Peter 3 And Lord, we know that according to 1 John 5, anything we pray according to your will, you hear us from heaven and we have the confidence that you will act. And so Lord, if there is anyone watching this now or later that does not know you, save them, Lord, from the uttermost. We have confidence that you will be faithful and to go forward and to save them and let them be born again, Jesus. We love you and we thank you for them. Be with us in the week ahead, God, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.